breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode of Reform This. Always, always an honor to be with you. Talk to you about the latest on the front lines, on the battlefronts of counter-Islamism, of reform, of confronting the Muslim Brotherhood networks, of confronting the theocrats, the belief that if you do not, if we do not begin to play offense in the battle against global Islamism and Islamic theocracy of Islamic republics and states, we are going to be doomed to fighting against the byproducts of radical Islam, terror networks, terror groups, and never see a solution. And every week I find some of the topics that I think highlight where we've been missing strategies, where we have opportunities, and where we can engage Muslims that share our values. And this week, what are we going to talk about? Uh, The drumbeats of war. The drumbeats of war, are they real? Do we have much to be concerned about when it comes to Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the latest salvos? And the Women's March appointed a replacement for Linda Sarsour, who was even more anti-Semitic, if that's possible, more Islamist, if that's possible, more anti-American, if that's possible. And she lasted 24 hours, and then she was booted. What is that a sign of? And what can we learn from it? And last, the news reports, the news reports about the Department of Education asking for an analysis of some of the funding to programs at UNC, Duke, about foreign service language and whether it's just too positive about Islam. What is behind those stories? And we'll talk about it. Alert. It's more fake news. First, let's talk about Iran. I think that's what's ever everyone's mind. I've had so many people send me questions, tweet me questions, direct message me questions, email me questions, worried about where are we headed? Is this administration headed to war? And I have to tell you, I thought there was a synergy in the White House with our National Security Advisor John Bolton and President Trump. I thought globally they saw a hawk in John Bolton and they saw a president that campaigned on not going to new wars and now, for example, pulling troops out of Afghanistan. And I thought that uh, played well into stabilizing the world. But then we saw Mr. Bolton sadly fired. And I think rightly so. Mr. Bolton has responded and defended his name and his reputation. He is a patriot. He is a man that has served multiple administrations selflessly and put this country first. So thank you, John. Thank you, Mr. Bolton. Thank you, Ambassador Bolton, for your service to this country. We are sorry. I am sorry to see you leave the administration and see you leave the White House. I know you will continue to serve our country like no other. Mr. O'Brien has been selected to replace him, and I'm sure he will do well. We'll always miss Mr. Bolton being in the White House. Mr. O'Brien brings a wonderful resume, history of service to previous administrations, and uh, we'll see if it's uh, what type of changes come. 
Now, what happened this week? Well, we saw the Iranian regime use drones, suicide drones, basically, to attack the oil reserves in Saudi Arabia. And they fired missiles upon a number of them, basically taking out 5%, if not more, of the world's reserves and a significant portion of Saudi Arabia's oil reserves and production capacity. They said they're going to be back online in a few weeks. Bottom line is is it caused shockwaves across the world, and there's fears that oil prices will climb. Now, what can we learn from this? Where are we headed? What has Iran done in the past few months? They have attacked cargo ships with mines, had boats climb onto cargo ships that are from Western countries, NATO countries, and cause harm, cause damage. They've sent drones to commit acts. The Houthis in Yemen have continued to commit acts of terror and war against the Yemeni government, against the Saudis. We've seen Hezbollah continue to enact acts of terror against Syrian citizens and against Israel. We've seen Assad continue, fueled by Iran, to commit crimes against humanity, against his people. So the bad actions of Iran have continued. And how did we get here? I think this is important. People are saying, oh, it's because the sanctions got replaced, got put back in, that now Iran is acting wantonly and brazenly. Well, hold on, ladies and gentlemen. How did we get here? We had eight years of the Obama administration who basically at the altar of the nuclear deal, and still till today, you follow Ben Rhodes' tweets and you see nothing more more, more pro-Iranian and anti-Saudi and anti-American, as far as the Trump administration is concerned, than Ben Rhodes' tweet, tweets every day defending Iranian belligerence. It's embarrassing. And what did they do? They gave the Iranian regime $150 billion. They they uh, responded to blackmail so that they could have an Iranian deal signed so that they would never get nuclear weapons. They basically turned a blind eye to the genocide committed against the people of Syria. They turned a blind eye to what was happening in Yemen allowed the regional hegemony, allowed the surrender of Iraq. While they never extinguished ISIS, President Trump allowing Defense Secretary Mattis the freedom to allow our Pentagon to demolish ISIS within 6 to 12 months, they were gone. President Obama didn't seem to give the Pentagon the freedom to do that so that we could win that war. So this is how we got to where we are right now. Appeasement at any cost to Iran, all at the nuclear deal. Sanctions removed. You saw companies beginning to talk about and actually investing in Tehran. And the Khomeinis were rife with cash. Were they giving it to their people? No, revolutions were teetering even worse as they saw that their com- that their country 
was shipping money out to commit acts of terror and military hegemony across the region in the Shia Crescent, from Lebanon to Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And he saw their bad actions increasing, and the people of Iran were more and more infuriated. Come President Trump, first six to 12 months, we are distracted from Iran because, rightly so, he's, he said, the administration said, we're going to decimate ISIS and get rid of them. And certainly in 2017, you saw ISIS into 18 then be defeated and destroyed. And then we turned to Iran, pulled out of the nuclear deal in May 2018, and one year later we said that would be complete, and in May 2019 sanctions kicked back in, and full sanctions were then deployed as Iran did not blink. And now Iran has begun to have economic retaliations against cargo ships, and now we saw most recently against the Saudi oil system, and some cyber strikes, cyber warfare in the region. What should be the United States' response? I think, first of all, how did we get here first? It's important as you as you give a trajectory of what should be the American response, we understand how we got here. Appeasement at any cost, basically, the Iranians have nuclear ambitions, but they said, well, as long as we stay 6 to 12 months from a period of being able to create a nuclear weapon, we decrease the number of centrifuges, etc., that uh, will appease the plan, and then we can continue with missiles, with um, terror operations, with regimes, with all this kind of stuff in the region, and continue to push back. And the Saudis felt cornered. The Saudis felt alone. Well, luckily, our allies, Israel, were not as dumbfounded as Obama was in dealing with Iran. They built up stronger alliances with the Saudis. And now we saw that that appeasement process of Obama simply kicked down the can, kicked the can down the road of dealing with the Iranian regime's sense of imperialism in the region, the sense of economic desires to dominate the region along with Russia. And we confronted them. So the Trump administration's insistence on having a more lasting solution that prevents them from acquiring a nuclear weapon is number one i think more rational and number two exacting economic sanctions that are much more punitive that actually hurt their economy also while it might make them act yes in short term it does make them very reckless but i still do not think they're going to want to risk going to war because they understand that while, yes, they're a regime that will go to war for 10 years and lose a million of their own people as they did in the Iran-Iraq war, but they're a regime that wants to stay in power. And a regime that wants to stay in power does not go to full-out war with the United States, number one. Number two, their technique of response will continue to be asymmetric warfare. That is their playbook, asymmetric warfare. So they will always have plausible deniability where they do not commit an act of war directly, or at least they allow it through a drone, through the Houthis, through Hezbollah, and they say, oh, that's not us. And they never take credit for it. 
and their surrogates do. And I think, yes, they, they, they don't expect America to believe them, but they don't care about what the American people or America thinks. They do care about the UN and how that sells there because they know the UN is a pushover. They know that Europe may try to salvage the nuclear deal and they're trying to exact enough punishment. So this is the rash, somewhat rational side of what they're doing. The irrational side is like a bear in a, in a trap. They're going to start gnawing at their leg to gnaw it off so they can get free. The rational side is that they want to exact enough punishment on the Saudis, on some European countries with their ships, so that they weaken their resolve and they figure out a way to just sort of let Iran have some money again and move forward. And I think this is beyond a Cold War. I think ultimately this is going to be the new normal. The new normal of a warm conflict. Asymmetric conflict, just like we've had against terror groups. But now the world's greatest sponsor of terror is going to be directly in a third-party conflict and sometimes first-party. Now, there are hints in the past few days that this attack on the oil production of the Saudi capability was actually launched from Iran. Once we can prove to the American people where this was launched from, I think we need to respond. I hope our our response is proportional. What do I mean by proportional? Well, if we see, for example, that they launch an attack on a city, on on a population, we need to respond. We can't, an act of war, an aggression from a country needs response, and you get Congress to respond. We can talk about the War Powers Act and whether the president needs to get permission to respond. That's a whole other debate. But we need to respond with deterrence. And there have been many members of Congress from the Senate and the House that have been saying this. But it needs to be proportional. So I would tell you that as hawkish as I've always been, and I have, yes, I'll admit I have a horse in this race as a Syrian-American who has seen Iranian belligerents slaughter through Assad towns in Syria with 10 million displaced, 600,000 killed. The Iranian regime has blood on their hands there. I'll admit that bias. But the bottom line is, is this is not a coincidence that they continue to be the greatest threat to our security that remains today now that ISIS is gone. And they continue to radicalize many across the world. So what do we do? Proportional response. They knocked out economic interests of our allies. The Saudis need to know. The world needs to know that you don't do that to American allies. I'm not a fan of the Saudi government, but I do believe that reform, that revolution, that democratization does not happen overnight, and it does not happen by the Shia taken out through sectarian violence, through sectarian international wars. So new governments, especially where the seat of Islam is, this would be an internal war within the Muslim world that could be of horrific proportions. Now, neither country has nuclear weapons, but again, this is an ally. Now, we have no 
NATO-type agreement with Saudi Arabia. But obviously, the destabilization of the entire region would do untold damage to the world's economy, to stability and to our allies. We have bases in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and elsewhere. Now, Qatar's role, we can talk about what is Qatar's role in this? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Let's bookmark that for a second. But I do believe we need a proportional response. A cyber attack upon Iran that takes out a significant impact upon its own economy. I think we continue to need to fuel the revolution there. I think we continue to prevent and lock in, as President Trump did, sanctions. Now, it's interesting. I thought we had every sanction possible against Iran, but I guess there are new ideas that come up. Now we've locked down their national banking system. Whatever's left to do, do it. Lock them down. Isolate them. I think part of what makes them more vulnerable now is in the past, the other global anti-American regimes, China, Russia, have acted to protect and prop up Iran. Turkey propped up Iran for years, bypassing sanctions through gold sales and other things that they're able to do. I don't think that's happening right now. Turkey has its own internal strife. Erdogan has turned into an Islamist authoritarian. Well, that's what he always was. But he, as a result of seeing the Syrian revolution die, has flipped back and now is back to the dictator's club. And I think the dictator's club is such that on the Sunni side, he may be stepping back from his affinity for Iran, though still having a strong affinity for Qatar. And Qatar does have an affinity for Iran because they share natural gas fields, so a lot of the economy of Qatar is dependent on it. But yet Qatar is part of the Arab League. So Qatar's situation is precarious. They've had a blockade with an economic division between Saudi Arabia that was in the early stages of the Trump administration, one of the first conflicts they dealt with, and I don't think that has cooled down at all. So Qatar is sort of separated out. It's sort of in an island now. It has separated itself out in a way that, as always... Qatar's vision, the the Athani family of Qatar, sees itself as sort of the future, and I think this is conjecture, but I think it sees itself as the future caliphate of the populist Islamist movement. So it has worked with populist Islamist grassroots radical Islamist movement. So it's its lead theologian, Yusuf Qardawi, Muslim Brotherhood spiritual guide type, who has an Islamist majoritocracy, theocratic mentality of Sharia states, Islamic states, in synergy with the Muslim Brotherhood movement. So that would be in synergy with the AKP of Turkey, in synergy with the Shia side of that being the Khomeinists of Iran, which is separate from the more corporate, Wahhabi-type, Salafi-type, fundamentalist, hardline type of Saudi Arabia, of the military of Egypt, of Jordanian royal family, etc., that now have been pulled more towards the West as far as geopolitics. I don't think ideologically, I think they're still authoritarian, but I think at least geopolitically, you see Egypt, Jordan, 
Bahrain, UAE, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, moving much closer now to the Trump administration to the West. Qatar is sort of in the middle there with, I think, their needle moving more towards the grassroots Islamist countries like Iran. So I think ultimately, I do not see, I do not see war breaking out. Trump administration, uh, Trump President Trump ran in a campaign that he would not enter into new wars. So I see that as being a decision. While he he rightly needs to make sure that it's a credible threat, that they can't feel that we would never go to war. But on the other hand, I just do not see that. Secondly, I think the Iranians want to stay in power. A war to them is something they simply cannot afford. They don't have the economic wherewithal to do it. And I don't believe the Russians I don't believe the Russians would green light that. And I think China has pulled out. There were stories, and this may be wrong, but there were stories last year that Iran begged China for loan guarantees to survive through the initial sanctions, and they were rebuffed. So will the Saudis respond? I hope America responds with a cyber attack and economic more maximum pressure, as Secretary Pompeo has called it. I don't believe the Saudis will respond because that sort of hangs them out to dry. Yes, the United States will defend them, but I think if they respond, Iran may feel that it can take on the Saudis. I don't believe they feel they'll take on the United States even though they talk a big talk. And I don't think Saudi wants to be as much as they don't want to be a pushover to Iran. I don't believe that they want to get that close to a hot war with them. Though the conflict in Yemen is as close as it's going to get. And the Saudis have been fighting ruthlessly there with significant and I think valid concerns that they've committed war crimes, as have the Houthis committed war crimes in Yemen. And again, the United States standing by our ally Saudi Arabia as we need to in the lesser of evils in the region does not excuse anything the Saudis may do in Yemen. But again, we can't throw away a relationship and allow Iran to seek its end-of-time scenario, which again, if there's intelligence that Iran is close to developing a nuclear weapon, I think... That changes the whole thing, as it would for Israel. But to go to war with Iran, and there's no evidence that they're close, there's a report out this week that reveals from Germany that there was credible evidence that they attempted directly to seek weapons of mass destruction in 2018. Surprise, surprise. So, a lot of this depends on the intelligence. What we know so far publicly, I do not think there's going to be war. I do believe there will be responses. I think we're going to be in a chronic years of of a cold, now warm war with surrogates. 
Iran will continue to use surrogates because the UN will allow them to do that and they won't say anything in response. We'll see what happens this week at the UN General Assembly in New York. And there'll be a lot of speechifying. But I do believe sort of the world order as we saw it in the 20th century is going to be reestablished, which is the Sunnis of the West. The Sunnis will be the Sunni regimes, the Sunni governments will be allied with the West, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, UAE, with NATO countries, and Russia and Iran and Syria allied against us. But as far as solutions go, I think ultimately the there's three. Number one would be over the next year or two as this warm conflict tit-for-tat continues with surrogates. Well, the United States doesn't use surrogates. We would respond directly, and then they would deny it and think that we're the aggressors because we're open in what we do. Well, they are not. But anyway, the number one hope I have is that the revolution, because of the economic weakness of the government, continue to spread. We see it spreading in many of the cities. We see the women's demonstrations increasing. Things happening this year. There was, by the way, just at the end of this week, huge dips in internet activity in Iran. Huge spikes downward. The government is running scared. They're starting to cut internet activity. We'll see what that means. But I think there's more happening internally than meets the eye. So number one would be that the revolution gains steam and that the regime be put on its heels and fall backwards and fall apart. Number two is that they withdraw into internal failure, as we saw in Syria, economically collapse and become weakened. I think they'll continue to act out like the bear in the trap. And number three is likely what's going to happen, which is they continue to find ways to enact various ways of punishment, And I don't understand why we can't tighten the airspace in Saudi Arabia and in the region, how drones continue to bypass our security operations. Just like Israel is protected by its Iron Dome, I don't see why we can't have a better mechanism of protecting the airspace in that area. The EU is going to try to continue to kick back into the nuclear deal. I don't think that's ever going to happen. It was just not a guarantee enough. It was a facade, but they'll try to continue to do it. President Trump, I think, is going to talk negotiations, but I think ultimately his advisors, and and he himself, will not give away the farm, and thus Iran won't comply either. So I think, again, number one's the best option. Number three is probably where we're going to end up. Number two, a withdrawn, internalized Iran is just not the way they're made. They're an end-of-times government. They are a a, uh, hegemonic, imperialistic, philosophical Shia Islamists. So I just don't think sort of a number two happens. It'll probably be a number three, which hopefully, hopefully leads us to a number one, which is revolution and the end of that regime. This week also, we saw Zahra Balu, 
the, the Council on American Islamist Radicalization, American Islamic Relations, CARES, San Francisco chapter head, was selected to the Women's March board and within 48 hours had to resign, was forced out. And she claimed it had to do with the, the choir, the, the complaints from the right of Islamophobia, etc. Listen, it is her tweets. It is her gross, horrific verbiage against our country that caused her to be removed. And I don't even understand how the Women's March board and leaders that select these people from the left don't do a Google search. I think they do, and they think the same way, but they just don't want to admit it. This red-green alliance between the far-left socialists and the Islamists. And Zahra Balu notoriously tweeted about Palestine from the sea to sea, basically talking about the destruction of Israel completely, tweeted about that she doesn't celebrate Memorial Day because of the crimes against humanity that the American military did. That's what she says. This traitor, this this seditious human being, at the time, I was so offended as a naval officer, and she said this repeatedly. She stood by those tweets saying that Memorial Day glorifies... A war machine. Memorial Day glorifies killers. She compared Israel, the Israeli IDF, to ISIS, as did Hussam Elush, her colleague at Care LA. She compared recruitment of FBI agents to the way ISIS radicalizes and recruits jihadists. And she didn't call them jihadists. She probably felt they were Islamic State patriots. And my response has always been that she go join a military that she feels proud of and leave this country. She has no evidence of fealty to America. She's a defender of the Khomeini regime. She's of Pakistani origin, I believe. I'm not sure what her fealty is, if she's Sunni or Shia, but the bottom line is, is that doesn't matter. Her geopolitics is one of always defending the Islamists from the Brotherhood to the Khomeinists and always attacking directly not only our policies but our military and the military of moral fighting forces like the United States and Israel. Our FBI, Homeland Security, and our Border Patrol. She sees them as evil. I couldn't find one tweet in which she condemned the Syrian military, which clearly committed acts of genocide and used chemical weapons can't help but think that her fealties with the Khomeinists. So this horror of a human being with radical ideas was quickly shown the door at the Women's March. Are they waking up? I think the care folks are seeing loss after loss, but I don't know if the left is waking up. I think they're going to keep trying until they get somebody that nobody has enough goods on to get them to abandon them. But Baloo's a radical. And her ideas are incompatible with a respect for the country that gives her the freedom, the liberty, that protects her rights to have the free speech that she uses as a bludgeon to attack her fellow citizens. On a lighter note, what was up with these climate strikes this week? What what was that? I mean, listen, I get it. We can have a debate about climate change and 
what America should do, what our government should do. Let's, you know, I think I'll save that from this podcast, but it seemed like another excuse for kids to miss school. And yet all of a sudden, all these Islamists are all about climate change. Seriously? (laughs) Sounds like an excuse to miss school. Last, I'm going to read you a headline from The Hill magazine, newspaper, website, whatever you want to call it, but The Hill. Trump administration says joint UNC-Duke program portrays Islam too positively. That's the title. Article written by Justine Coleman. And then that is the title tweeted out. And I'll read you an excerpt. Now, if you read the report, it says the Trump administration is pressuring UNC and Duke to revise their joint Middle East studies program or risk federal funding. The Education Department wrote an August 29 letter to Duke UNC Consortium for Middle East Studies. And remember, on this podcast, I talked to you about how that consortium ignored my speech, my visit to the campus, and actually facilitated professors there that tried to demonize what I said, and their students attacked me and caused enough security concern to move us to the fringes of the school. And then after it was done, the newspaper actually reported positively on what I said, showing that it was really simply an attempt to deplatform. <laughs> anyway, we'll go on in the report. The agency requested they amend the program by September 22nd or lose a grant they've been receiving for almost a decade, the Associated Press reported. The National Resource Center provides grants to programs that support foreign language learning. So this is foreign language learning grants. And again, I'm reading the Hill's report compared to their title. Remember their title was about the complaint from the Trump administration because it was positive on Islam. The Education Department said in this letter that foreign language and national security have taken a backseat to other priorities that have little or no relevance to the objectives of the grant. The Education Department wrote that the program places a considerable emphasis on the understanding of the positive aspects of Islam, while there is an absolute absence of any similar focus on the positive aspects of Christianity, Judaism, or any other religion or belief system in the in, in the Middle East. It has until September 22nd to send a revised schedule of activities. And the Education Department on Thursday said the review is focusing on compliance. And they said it is patently false that the Department of Education is reviewing the program as being too positive on Islam. We're reviewing it, use of grant funds, because we are concerned that they have not followed congressional requirements for the program, that students must learn a foreign language and hear diverse regional perspectives. Our inquiry has nothing to do with their program having an Islamic bias. Pro-Islamic programming isn't the concern. It's the lack of diversity in foreign language learning. And then the consortium responded. So the title was that the Trump administration says the joint UNC-Duke program portrays Islam too positively. Are you kidding me? Talk about deception. It's like a salesman trying to sell you a car. That's not what it's about. If you read the report themselves, they say it's about the lack of diversity. It's about the monolithic presentation of it's supposed to be a foreign language service program and it ends up being a dawah program for islam that is a problem that's 
actually runs against constitutional mandates. It doesn't portray other faiths positively. So this is about a monolithic lack of diversity, which the left you'd think cared about, but because they're so obsessed about anti-Trump stuff, they're ignoring, they buried the lead of the story. It shows you how corrupt the media has become in its portrayal of facts regarding governmental review of programs that were so Islamophilic, Islamistophilic for Islamists in universities that it prevented actual critical thinking, that it prevented the grants from being used for the purposes they were intended, which was about language, which was about whatever it might be, but it certainly wasn't about promoting the spread of, of, of beautiful ideas about Islam. And listen, I'm Muslim, I love my faith, but this type of promotion actually promotes the Islamists. It doesn't promote reform, it doesn't promote critical thinking, and it buries the ability to ask tough questions that folks in our Muslim reform movement are asking every day. And I think there's so much to be learned here. When you, when you say, we're the moderate voices of Islam, even government grants from both sides of the aisle are being used to empower Islamist anti-Semitic professors and ignore other faiths and ignore other cultures across the Middle East, not about the Yazidis, not about the Jews, not about Christians or Coptics. It's about Muslims and Islam. You can't reform a faith that's not being held to the antiseptic of sunlight like everybody else. Well, another blockbuster week talking to you, all of you, and uh, going through some of the issues of the day, be it Iran, be it Baloo, be it government funding of Islamist whitewashing. As always, it's great to be with you. We will be back next week. Here's faithfully Zudi Jasserit Reform This on the Blaze TV Podcast Network. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.